Believers, we have been blessed, haven't we? We've been singing about that this morning. Blessed in so many ways. I hope you've spent time this past week just thinking on and and praising God for all the ways He has blessed you. I know I have. First and foremost, he, He sent His Son, believers, to die so that you and me, though undeserving, could live through Him. If for no other reason, we need to spend the rest of our lives here, and as we just sang, we're going to spend all of eternity praising God for just that, aren't we? It's important that we take time. Not just one week or one day out of the year on Thanksgiving, but, but time out of every day and week to praise God for who He is and for what He has done. We find examples of His people doing this all throughout His Word. And in the middle of your Bibles, He gives us, in the middle of our Bibles, He gives us a whole book filled with words of praise toward God. And of course, I'm talking about the book of Psalms. The title of the book, the word Psalm, is the Hebrew word Tehillim which means to praise. In the Septuagint, in the Greek, is the word salmos, which means to pluck or play or sing. This book is a songbook of praise to God. It's called by many, the book of Psalms is called the hymn book of the Bible. And one of the main reasons God has given us this book is so that we can know how to relate to Him and to respond to Him in every season of life. And this book, though it is found in in the poetry section of your English Bibles, there are many different sub-genres and sub-categories within the book of Psalms. In other words, there, there are many different kinds and types of Psalms within the book of Psalms. For example, there are Psalms of wisdom. Wisdom Psalms teach us how to live for God. There are praise Psalms. These are Psalms that are extremely positive and teach us how to relate to God and praise Him when, when times are good. There are also Psalms of lament. And lament Psalms are, are in many ways the opposite of praise Psalms. They're written for us when we're going through difficulty. They often sound negative and gloomy, yet they are hopeful. They are psalms that teach us how to respond to God in the storms of this life when it seems as if God is distant. There are also psalms of thanksgiving. These are psalms of praise and lament all rolled into one. These psalms follow this pattern. Life was good, then it got bad, now it's good again. All right? And, and they, they teach us how to respond to God in these situations. There are also psalms of confidence. In these psalms, the psalmist expresses great confidence in God, no matter if life is good or bad. There are also psalms of remembrance. In these psalms, the psalmist looks back to the past and how God has worked throughout history, and he calls upon his readers to trust in God's faithfulness, look at his faithfulness in the past, and trust in his faithfulness for the future. 
There are also kingship psalms. These psalms are often written about the, the kings of Israel. Many of these look forward to the future king to come, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are a lot of different categories, lots of different kinds and types of psalms. And so I thought it fitting on this Sunday after Thanksgiving, before we get into our Christmas series next week, to look at a praise psalm. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 8. Praise psalms are fairly easy to identify. They're pretty obvious. Like we said, they're, they're extremely upbeat. Praise psalms have a very clear and simple theme, and that theme is worship. In these psalms, the psalmist is basically saying, life is good. I'm good with God. He's good with me. Things are good in life in general, so I'm going to worship him like crazy, and I'm going to call for others to do the same. So again, it's fitting this morning, this Sunday after Thanksgiving, to unpackage one of these praise psalms. Now, some of you may be here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I don't know how well this psalm is going to apply to me today because that's not the season of life that I'm in. If I'm being honest, though it's the holiday season and things are winding down for the year, things are not going good for me right now. I could probably benefit better from a psalm of lament. If this is you, my prayer for you today is that you would see, though life may be difficult for you at the moment, though you may be struggling spiritually, though, though you may be beaten up, by the circumstances of life, I hope you see in this psalm this morning that despite all of that, you are blessed beyond measure, believers, because you have been created by God and redeemed for him through his son, Jesus. And again, it's worth a lifetime of praise, is it not? Well, let's look at Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a praise psalm. Praise psalms normally follow a, a, a very distinct pattern. There are normally three characteristics to a praise psalm. You have the call to praise, the reason for praise, and a further call to praise. Pretty easy, right? Let's look at this pattern as we unpackage Psalm 8. Notice first the call to praise in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. This is a psalm of David here. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This here is the, the call to praise. And in this call to praise, we have a great statement made about our God, which is the, the first point in this outline. The psalmist begins by making the point that God's name is great in all the earth. God's name is great in all the earth. Look at verse 1 again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how great is your name in all the earth. Now, now notice here that this call to worship is more implied than it is directly stated. Sometimes in praise psalms, the psalmist will just come out and say, praise the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. Lift up your voices. Clap and sing. But notice here, the psalmist doesn't give a direct command here to worship, nor is he calling upon people to worship in this first verse. 
But it is implied here that the Lord is majestic. The Lord is great. The Lord is excellent and should be worshipped in all the earth. Now I want to draw your attention to four words at the beginning of this psalm. O Lord, our Lord. You need to know that that a bit is lost in translation here. In our English translation, we have the same word used for Lord. But in the verse itself, in the original Hebrew, there are two different words used. Notice in your translations, one word is in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Do you see that? That is indicating whenever you see that, The translators are indicating that the sacred name for God is being used. Whenever you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the name Yahweh is used. Then notice the second word, capital L, and then there's a small O-R-D. That is the word Adonai. So the psalmist is essentially saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai. That's kind of interesting, right? Why two different words? Well, with these two names, the psalmist is stressing the fact that their God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I mean, that's, that's emphasized here. He's our God, our, our Lord. But why these two different words? Well, let's look at both of them. First, focus on the name Yahweh, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The name Yahweh is the most sacred name for God in the Bible. It's a name that emphasizes and stresses God's transcendence, his otherness, his holiness, his distinctiveness. The word Adonai, which is the name the Jews used on a regular basis, they would not say the sacred name of God, Yahweh, for fear of using it in an empty or flippant way and violating the third command. The name Adonai was, was the, word they, the name they used more often, and it was a much more personal way of referring to God. It means ruler, master, Lord. So the psalmist is essentially saying here, O Yahweh, O holy and transcendent and sacred and majestic God, my master, my Lord, my ruler. Now why does the psalmist use these two different names here? Is it just because he thought it sounded nice, kind of flowed well? Did he, did he put it in without even really thinking about it? No, the words in Scripture are very important. None of them are there by accident, and these certainly are not. The psalmist here, I believe, is setting up a pattern that is going to be seen throughout the rest of this psalm. For the rest of the psalm, the psalmist is going to be emphasizing the fact that God is is Yahweh and Adonai. He is limitless. He is other. He is transcendent. He is majestic. He is infinite. And on the other hand, the psalmist makes the point, he is, God is our, he is my, he is your Lord. He is our master. He is mindful of his people. He lives in covenant with them. He is near to us. He is tabernacled with us. He is, he is near. He is personal. He is imminent. By using both of these names, I believe the psalmist is emphasizing God's transcendence, his otherness, his distinctiveness, and his nearness. 
his eminence, his closeness. And this is a pattern we're going to see throughout the rest of this psalm. Look at verse 1 again. He says, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in other translations, it says, how excellent, how great, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist here is emphasizing God's greatness, his majesty, his excellence. And in the following verses, he goes on to discuss the scope of God's excellence. And he does this by showing his excellence from far away and from up close. Let's first look at his excellence from far away, which is the second point of praise under the call to praise. God is glorious from far away. David says this, You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, notice how great this is. The psalmist is saying God's glory, his greatness, his excellence is above the heavens. In other words, his greatness is far beyond the place anyone could imaginably go. Beyond the highest of highs. It's the apex, the the pinnacle, the peak. Have you ever been on top of a mountain and looked out in amazement at God's creation? I mean, it's his glory is higher than that. It's, it's above the heavens. It's beyond the highest of highs. It's beyond the highest point that, that one could imaginably go. His excellence, his greatness, his glory is far above the heavens, above the highest of highs. And not only that, not only is God glorious from far away, not only is he glorious beyond the heavens... But notice here, he's also glorious from up close, from nearby. That's the third point of praise. God is glorious from up close. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. I like the way the NIV puts it. In the NIV, the verse reads, From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Now, what does that mean? Well, the psalmist here is making the point that God is shown to be great, majestic, glorious, through the greatest and the least of his creation by the world's standards. He shows himself to be glorious and magnificent and excellent, from the highest of highs, from beyond the highest point imaginable, far above the heavens. And he also shows himself to be glorious and magnificent and excellent from the lowest of lows, from the least of created beings from the perspective of the world. Now, some commentators believe he's talking about Israel here, who, though they were small when compared to the other Gentile nations in the world, were followers and worshipers of the one true God of the Scriptures. Others believe he's actually talking about children here who praise the Lord, who belong to him. In Matthew 21 When children are worshiping Jesus, remember the Jewish religious leaders were critical. They were praising Jesus, saying he's the son of David, and were told that they were angry. And what does Jesus do to rebuke them? He quotes this verse of Scripture. 
He says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. So God is shown to be glorious from the highest of highs and out of the mouths of children. And we witness this each and every week, right? When we, when we come to church, as we travel to church, we can look in the sky, we can look at the beautiful created world around us and see God's glory on display from the highest of highs. And when we enter this place and when we sing his praises together, we hear people, young and old, singing wonderful truths about our God. We see his glory from far away, from the highest of eyes, and we see his glory from up close, out of the mouths of our children, amen? And get this, the praise that our children sing is able to silence the worst of God's enemies. That's what he says. Their praise is able to still God's greatest foes. That's powerful. That's the point. So this is the first part of the psalm. This is the call to praise. The psalmist makes the point that God's name is great in all the earth. And his greatness, his excellence, his majesty, his glory is seen from on high and from up close. His glory reaches far beyond the heavens and is also revealed out of the mouths of the weak and feeble. So that's the call to praise. Let's look at the reason for praise the reason for praise we find the reason given in verses three through eight notice in these verses we're given two reasons why we should worship the lord the first reason we're to worship god is because god is creator of all he is creator of all look at verse three when i look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Let's stop there for just a minute. So, so notice here, the psalmist is showing right off the bat that God is majestic, he is excellent, he is marvelous and glorious because he is creator. Notice he refers to the skies, to the heavens as God's heavens. He says, when I look at your heavens, the skies above are God's, right? He created them. He is holding them in place. The psalmist continues with, the moon and the stars have been set into place by you. He's showing that that God is to be worshipped because he is the all-powerful creator who has made all that is. Notice how powerful he is. The psalmist says, the heavens that you have created, the moon and, and the stars that you've put into place, they're the work of your fingers, not hands, fingers not by accident i think that's distinction is made those of y'all that have boys at home you know they love to to brag and challenge one another right especially when it comes to feats of strength one way boys will challenge one another is by picking up heavy objects to show how strong they are i remember being out in the neighborhood and a few of my friends growing up and and we would challenge each other in this way and somebody would lift up something heavy and the other one would respond, some of the other boys would respond with, oh, that's nothing, I can lift that with what? With one finger, my pinky finger, right? Yeah. 
I believe the psalmist is basically making this point here. He's saying God is so strong, so powerful that he made the heavens. He put the moon and the stars in place with his fingers. And for that reason, the psalmist says we should worship him. He's saying God has created all that is with ease, with his fingers. Therefore, he deserves our praise because he is our all-powerful creator. Folks, creation should move us to worship. It should. There are some today who believe that greater science literacy leads to the death of God. Many believe the more you, you know about science, the less you will believe in God. Well, many of our early pioneers in science completely disagree with that logic. It was Johann Kepler who viewed science simply as thinking God's thoughts after him. Pretty good definition, right? And what he meant by that was when a scientist is engaged in the study of our world, what he is looking for are laws that God has put into place, the laws that he has established from the beginning. Another great thinker by the name of Isaac Newton. Have you all heard of him? Anybody? Yeah, okay, good. Newton said this, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. See, these brilliant men's belief in God didn't erode away as they became more knowledgeable about our natural world. Instead, their faith in God increased. That is to be the natural progression. The more and more we learn about our natural world, the more and more we we study creation, the more and more we should see the beauty and the, the majesty and the glory of God in it all. So we're to worship the Lord for that reason, because he is creator of all. But that's not all. The psalmist also makes the point that God is to be worshiped because he's mindful of us. That's the next point. God is creator of all. God is mindful of us. Psalmist here makes the point that the God who made everything with his fingers created us and is mindful of us. Look at verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see, though God is creator of all, he is mindful of us. Think about it. Think about all the magnificent and wonderful things God has made. And then think about this. Of all the things he has created, we are the most significant. We are the most important in the eyes of God. And the reason why is because God has made us that way. God has set us above all the rest of his creation. Think about the the planets, all the planets in the universe, the billions of stars. None are more significant than we are, according to God's word. Why? Because he made us that way. He created us in his image, male and female. He created us in his image. Of all the things that God has created, we're the ones who are most like him. We're the only ones said to be created in his image. 
And the psalmist here is reflecting on this and, and he is thinking of all the incredible things that, that God has made. And then he begins to think about the fact that, that God is more mindful of man than anything else in the world and that moves him to worship. And it should move us to worship. Look at verse 5. David says this, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this here is a verse that's been interpreted in one of two ways. The word translated my ESV Bible as heavenly beings is the Hebrew word Elohim, which can be translated God, but it can also refer to heavenly beings, angelic beings. Now, depending upon the translation that you have, your Bible will either say that it is to be translated God or heavenly beings. In the King James, it says angels. In the NIV, I believe it says angels as well. Now, does that mean the Bible is flawed? Does that mean there's a mistake? Well, remember, when we talk about the fact that the Bible is without error, what we mean when we say that is that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts, in the original Hebrew and Greek, and is without error in our Bibles insofar as they are consistent with the original. You with me? And in this particular passage, there are two different ways that our different translations translate that word Elohim. And I've read several commentaries on this, and, and scholars land on both sides of this. Some believe this is to be translated heavenly beings, while others believe this is talking about God here. The issue that some take with the word Elohim being translated God is because of the fact that the psalmist says we are a little lower. Now, many of you would agree, I know you would agree with me, that we're not a little lower than God, right? We're, we're infinitely lower, but scholars will come back and they'll argue, well, this is poetry, and poetry is inexact language, it's figurative language that, that's used, that's something you learn when you study the poetry. So they're, they're, they're using inexact language here to make the point that, that we're significant created beings. Many also argue that if the psalmist was talking about God here, he would have said, you have made him a little lower than yourself. Because that would follow consistently. He's been speaking in the second person to God throughout the entire text. So I think that's a good point as well. Those who take the issue with the word Elohim being translated heavenly beings or angels argue that though we are less than heavenly beings when it comes to certain abilities right now and because of the fact that we're currently fallen and sinful, many argue that we are more significant than they are in that we're the ones created in God's image. Again, nothing else in Creation is said to be created in God's image. We're the ones God came to redeem. We're told that in Hebrews, remember? We're told Jesus didn't become an angel because he didn't come to redeem angels. He became a man to redeem mankind. And they also argue that in 1 Corinthians 6.3, we're told that, that we will judge angels. We will rule over angels. And for all of those reasons and more, people will argue that though we are a little lower than angels in some ways, there are other ways in which we are not. Okay, I'm sorry for the long side note, but I needed to let you know about that. But wherever you land, I land toward it being translated angels because of what is said by the author of Hebrews 
In the first of Hebrews, he's talking about the fact that, that Jesus is greater than the angels, and he actually quotes Psalm 8. So I believe that provides some context. But wherever you land, the point that's being highlighted doesn't change. The point that's being made here is man's place in comparison with the rest of creation, with other created beings. Though we are less than God, though we have greater restrictions on us when compared to heavenly beings, we are more significant than than everything else in creation because when God created us, he made us in his image for himself and for his glory and for that reason. We should praise him. And in the following verses, we learn not only has has God made us in his image, not only did he at first create us in right relationship with him before we turned away and rebelled in sin, he also placed us in a position of authority over his created world. The God with all authority has placed us in authority over his creation. Look at verses 6 through 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So so we learn here, not only are we the most significant, most important of God's created beings, but we also learn here we've been given authority and dominion over creation. The psalmist says, you have given him, man, dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put how many things? Some things? All things under his feet. Now, we know today, believers, though God has done this, creation has become unruly today. Can we agree upon that? Though God has given us dominion, creation has become unruly. That's why we hear about, on the news, we hear about tornadoes and wildfires and tropical storms. We hear about wild animals attacking. We get sick. We get cancer. We we die. All of this happens as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, as a result of that. The created world has become unruly toward us like we have become toward God. It's one of the curses of the fall. Fortunately, Christ has come to regain that dominion that was lost by man at the fall. Though though the dominion over creation was lost at the fall, listen, it was won back by Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. It's one of the reasons for his miracles. Christ is revealing that when he comes and when he heals the sick when he restores sight to the blind, when he casts out demons, when he calms the storm. Jesus is showing what he's come to do. He's come to reverse the curse. He's come to make things right once again. He did this throughout his earthly ministry. He did this in his death and resurrection. He regained authority, regained supremacy for man that was lost at the fall by becoming a man, laying down his life for us. And one day, he is going to set things completely right when he returns. And this process has already begun. And and we're evidence of that. Isn't that awesome? This is how mindful God is of us. 
Not only has he created us in his image and given us authority, when we turned away from him, when we sinned against him, when we ruined and wrecked God's created world and messed up the created order and his image in us, God put in the work to restore and redeem us through his son. So the psalmist is reflecting on these truths, on the fact that that God is creator of all and mindful of us. He's saying, for this reason, God is to be worshipped. For this reason, we are to come before him and say, God, your name is great in all the earth. You are glorious and majestic and excellent from far away, from on high, above the heavens, and you are glorious and majestic and excellent from up close. So that's the call to praise. That's the reason for praise. And then notice third and finally, the final characteristic here in this praise psalm, at the end we have a further call to praise. Look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a repeat of verse 1. We've come full circle here in this psalm. The psalmist started this psalm with this, and then he went on to give further points of praise by explaining the scope of God's greatness, saying that God is glorious from far above the heavens and out of the mouths of babies and infants. And then he gives the reason for praise by explaining that God is creator of all and he's mindful of us. And now he returns to what he said in verse 1 to give this further call to praise. He's saying, in light of all of this, God's name is majestic. His name is great. His name is glorious. His name is excellent in all the earth. And I want to close this morning by asking a very simple question. Is this your perspective? Is this the way you view God? Is this psalm consistent with your thoughts about him? When you think of God, do you think of him as limitless and transcendent and majestic and infinite and also as mindful of us and as imminent and near and personal and intimate? Is he your Lord? Do you see his glory in all things? Do you see his glory from on high? Do you see his glory up close? Do you see his greatness in the heavens and out of the mouths of, of babies and infants? Do you realize he is the creator of all and that he is mindful of you and me, mindful of us? If not, there's one explanation I can give and it's this, you don't know him. If that's not your perspective, you don't know him. If you're here this morning and you don't share the perspective of the psalmist here in Psalm 8, chances are good you do not know the God of the psalmist. The God of Scripture. The one true God of all. And if that's you, i got good news for you today. You're in the right place. The, the good news is that you can come to know him. Our God has gone to great lengths to make himself known. Amen? Through creation. We're told the heavens declare the glory of God. He has also made himself known to us in his word. He has given us his word. And, and most importantly, he has made himself known to us through his son. God took on flesh. That's what we're been singing about this morning. It's what our, where our focus is, should be all year round, but especially this time of year.
God the Son left the riches of heaven, became one of us, so that he could make God known to us. That is the extent that God has gone through to be known by us. He has identified with us in every way so that we, in turn, could identify with him. The God who is glorious, far above the heavens, who is limitless, transcendent, majestic, infinite, the God who created everything that is with his fingers has come near. He has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus so that through Christ we could come to know and worship God and be forgiven of sin through faith alone in Christ alone and be brought back into a right relationship with him. So if you're here this morning, you don't know him, I invite you this morning. Enter into a right relationship with the living God through faith alone in Christ alone. Let me pray for us.